A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and here we are with part three on the Jewish history of Toronto, and this part three has been generously sponsored by the Rubenstein family of Toronto, Canada, and Ra'anana, Israel, in honor of Bill and Judy Rubenstein, Zechrenim Levracha, the patriarch and matriarch of the Rubenstein family, and pillars of the Toronto Jewish community. Also has been generously sponsored in honor of Rabbi and Rebetzin Sofer of Kahal Avrechim, the Shifshul. So, we also have found out that uh, our, our, the, in Toronto, they're still in the lockdown. And uh, here in Israel, we're completely out of it, please God. So, just uh, showing our solidarity. And that's also why this is the first time of it in anything in the Jewish history uh, of the uh, Great American Jewish Cities series on Jewish History Soundbites that we're having a part three. Because we have to provide more content for our brethren in, uh, in unfortunately still on lockdown. Hope you get out soon and everyone feels okay. Got lots of feedback from the first two uh, parts, some of it which I'll just incorporate into the text, into, um, into in other words, into what I'm going to say. Just wanted to start off with a couple of those letters, though. One of them is uh, says, Just an interesting story with Toronto and Hasidic Rebbe's. Once, Reb Moshe Weber came to Toronto and he said, Toronto is a great town and has everything in it, but what Toronto is really missing is a Hasidish Rebbe. I think there were or are a couple of Rebbes there. I mentioned a few uh, during uh, part two. But here is another letter I got. Rebbe Akiva Stefanski made a huge impact on the city when he came in the 1950s to lead the Beis Yaakov High School, as the thousands of girls who went through that high school can testify. Many of these students barely had anything to do with Judaism and are now living full Torah lives. He was also instrumental in bringing the Kolo to Toronto, and in his later years a Kirov, ran a Kirov camp for non-religious girls. Another letter. You mentioned when talking about Rabbi Felder that you didn't know that Canada had an Air Force. There is a story that in the Lieutenant Birnbaum book about Morley Auerbach, who was a gunner in the Canadian Air Force. Every time he would drop a bomb, he would throw down a Yiddish newspaper afterwards so the Germans would know that there is a Jewish kid up there bombing them. 
Okay, fantastic. It's uh, all great stories. Um, another community within Toronto that I wanted to talk a little bit about the history and runs almost into contemporary is the Gladstone Jewish Community, which was um, first run by uh, Reb Nachum Rabinovich, uh, who was a fascinating character, had a colorful and influential career in both in the south of the United States, later on in England, he was a, where he was a, a Rebbe and a mentor of Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. And then later on, in his later years, he was in Mala Dumim in Israel, and he only passed away recently. But um, for several years, in the 1960s, for about almost a decade, he was a rabbi in, in this Gladstone Jewish community. He was uh, in the Clanton Park Synagogue, and he actually did his PhD in the, the University of Toronto in 1971. So he definitely made his imprint on the uh, Toronto Jewish community. And the Gladstone community was taken over afterwards by Rabbi Yitzchak Kersner, who was the longtime rabbi there and a very convivial and homey atmosphere in the shul, and he was like a father to his congregants, many of whom were Holocaust survivors, a very uh, influential leader as well in the Toronto rabbinate for the in the post-war era. Um, another institution which I wanted to get to was Chat, uh, which is also known as as the um, as the Tannenbaum Private Jewish High School. Um, one of the largest uh, J- uh, Jewish high schools, albeit non, non-Orthodox, uh, not exactly the most religious high school, but um, they had their own uh, place in history also because Reb Shimon Shkup's son had a, fe- a son named Avram Shkup, who was also not so religious, to say the least. Uh, he was a teacher there in uh, in the associated uh, Talmud Torahs, uh, um, um, which was affiliated with Chad. So you had that uh, part of the uh, Jewish community as well. But moving along to other institutions, this time back in the Orthodox community. So one of the main and major transformative uh, institutions, changes that happened in the history of the post-war uh, Toronto Jewish community was the founding and the development of the Lakewood Kolo, which I started to mention, but I want to get a little bit more in depth uh, into now. Um, of course, the heads of the Kolo are Shlema Miller and Rabbi Yaakov Hirschman, and, um, and my friend Srili Besser was able to fill me in on some of the details, especially on the Reichman's family's, uh, Reichman family's role in building uh, the Kolo. So uh, apparently, the and started with the patriarch of the family, Shmaya Reichman, and his sons, um, Paul Reichman, Moshe Reichman, Albert Reichman, were both heavily, all of them were heavily involved in in the building and development of of the Kail for the future of um, of the uh, of the Toronto Jewish community for it to grow as a place of Torah, a place where it would be attractive for the young of the community who are going to study in yeshivas out of town would want to come back and settle in the community, which was not happening in the 1960s. So they wanted that to, to give the uh, an impetus for the growth uh, and to be attractive for young families to come to the community, and this would really have a positive uh, impact. And it was a revolutionary idea at the time, an out-of-town call was the first one ever, um, and the local, local, local people in the community weren't, you know, they might have been receptive to the idea, but they didn't found the idea strange, and and uh, it was as a concept that was literally completely unheard of um, for uh, 
to bring you know the atmosphere of a yeshiva to a distant community and inspire the the locals um so so the um so Ramesh Reichman hosted a meeting of local businessmen to share the idea of the kail and to get the funding and different ideas were shared for a location and someone mentioned a, a an empty storefront on Bathurst and they said if uh, once one of the people there said if you take that space then perhaps the kail will actually benefit the city because the landlord there has been struggling to find a tenant for some time now and that's that's how it was looked at at that point it wasn't it wasn't it was it was just a, a new idea that people had to take time to get used to uh, someone else at the meeting said if you say a kail is good for us then I'll help you but tell me one thing what's a kail um but it gets off the ground and like i mentioned uh um, in the previous episode, uh, part one, I think, that Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky ha- had, a, had earlier been a rabbi in Toronto. He kept his connection to the city. His second wife was from Toronto, and he would visit often, so he um, was uh, would visit often, and he uh, had a great influence on the development of that uh, kail, as did um, Rabbi Schneer Cutler, the Rosh Hashiva of Lakewood, who um, eventually, the idea of the out-of-town Kyle became very closely connected and affiliated with Lakewood Yeshiva and Rabbi Schneer Cutler and the vision, of course, of Rabbi Nassim Vachtfeigl, the Mashkiach of Lakewood. But Toronto was the first place that it happened. Um, they gave their support and they uh, sent their Talmidim of Lakewood, Rabbi, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Shlomo Miller and Rabbi Yaakov Hirschman, to become you know, uh, the heads of the Kyle. Um And... Uh, and uh, they they um, they assemble a group, and in 1970 the kail starts. It gets off the ground, and they they bring another another novelty to the city. They bring a shtender, and they decided that they're going to have it's going to be a real yeshiva look. Uh, they're going to bring a shtender. So this was the first shtender officially in Toronto history. I highly doubt that it was the first one. They're probably in the shtibles of the 1920s. They also had shtenders. But so it has gone into the lore of Toronto Jewish history that this was the first shtender. So let it be that way. Either way, so they, um, so the Reichmans, uh, they, they buy a place for the kail. They help the uh, funding for the, uh, for the housing for the first kolal members. And um, and then the bridge is built between the coal and the wider community, so that there should be it shouldn't be an ivory tower. There should be a close connection between the two, and um, and they should be a a part of the community. Um, so, and of course, one of the other one of the other things that that uh, Moshe Reichman tried to do at this point is to is to have the community excuse me, to have the community involved in the Kail, that it shouldn't be a Reichman Kail. Everyone should be involved. It should belong to the community, and the funding should come from the entire community. And uh, that was a, a very a strong preference and of how it should be um, of how it should be built. Uh, yeah, but an interesting story um, is that is that Ramesh Reichman, who valued the Kail, and he one day he came into the Kail directly from work, and he approached Rabbi Hirschman, the Reich Kail, and he said, My accountant told us today that the rate of inflation has shot up by 7%. So please adjust the Kolo checks to make sure that the salary of the younger light who study in the Kolo matches the cost of living. So that's a, you know, the attention to detail. Um, so in through the 1970s, and this also actually, it came 
originally, from the initiative who I mentioned, Rabbi Kiva Stefanski, who is the principal of the Beis Yaakov, the idea of the Kol actually came from him uh, as well, together with the Reichmans. Um, interestingly enough, the I, the fact that it was the first Lakewood Kol, so that means that that Toronto, the the community of Jewish community of Toronto, as well as the Reichman family, deserve credit for the entire community kollel project that that ensued afterwards in the 1970s and 80s throughout the United States and beyond. So since uh, the pioneer the pioneering effort came from Toronto and then their initiative, so they uh, definitely get the credit. Um, over the years, it influenced the kollel influenced either directly or indirectly almost every Torah institution in the city. The community was very receptive and welcoming, including the old rabbis who I mentioned in part one, or Rav Ram Aaron Price, Rav Gedalia Felder. Um, in fact, uh, Rabbi Hirschman uh, recalled visiting the local rabbis when they arrived in Toronto, and he said uh, most of them were, you know, tremendous Talmudic Chachamim. They didn't have to have an audience at the time in Toronto who appreciated their Torah knowledge. But Rav Shlomo Miller knew every piece that they had contributed to rabbinic journals of the day and was intimately familiar with their sfarim and their tshuvas. So these all these elderly rabbis, they fell in love with this young Talmud Chacham who understood them. They felt understood. And that was one of the reasons that the uh, Kail ha- was, uh, was received so well was because of that immediate Torah connection that was made between the younger Shlomo Miller and the elderly rabbis. It was a very small, close-knit group in the early years, and Albert Reichman, who was heavily involved in the Kail, would join them for davening and was like part of the, the family. Um, an interesting story from those early years, right after the Kohl's arrival. Uh, upon exiting the building, the young men of the Kohl in their suits and black hats caught the attention of a group of youngsters who were idling at the corner of the street. The group was a colorful bunch. Many of them were sporting long hair down to their shoulders. Approaching the Yingalite, the boys inquired who they were and what they were doing on top of the Judaica store, which was the first home of the Kohl during that time. And the members of the Kohl responded that they were studying Torah. Torah, what's that? So they said, come up and we'll show you. In this legacy of outreach, which involved studying with local boys and reaching out to different members of the community, um, which eventually these boys went to yeshivas such as Tells and and uh, and Sharyashev uh, in Farakway and other yeshivas, this uh, started the, the legacy of outreach to, to the community. Um, so, uh, so, Another, uh, um, I mentioned Albert Reichman. So he, the uh, Albert Reichman, uh, his, his, him and his family. The, the once the Iron Curtain fall, he was heavily involved in in um, rehabilitating Russian Jewry uh, with the, the whole Refusenik movement. And as the Iron Curtain fell, and reestablishing Jewish communities in Eastern Europe, in Moscow, in Kiev, in Minsk, Budapest, and much, much more. Um, the the uh, the help the in the local schools rabbi salaries and schools by the with the Canadian Foundation spearheaded by Albert Reichman um, he was involved in in getting that initiative and project off the ground as well I mentioned in an, in one of the earlier episodes uh, about Ner Yisrael in Toronto um, so I just found out uh, submitted. By one of the letters, one of the uh, one of the people I spoke to from Toronto was uh, was the fact that 
that the initiative to start a yeshiva high school in the 1950s came from the Toronto Jewish community. And they first turned to YU, to MTA, to open a high school. And YU and MTA refused. So they then went to Ner Yisrael, and Ner Yisrael said, yes, we'll open a branch there. So one of the big what-ifs of Toronto Jewish history is, what if YU would have said yes? Uh, so that's uh, that would have been an interesting thing to speculate, how that would have impacted the development afterwards, and that's a, a cute uh, thing to imagine about and hawk about over the channel this coming Shabbos. Um, now, it was a large a community of Holocaust survivors after the war, and uh, and that added to the uh, family atmosphere among the emerging Jewish community, especially of the immigrants post-war, because the Holocaust survivors, large percentage of the of the Orthodox community after the war was was survivors, and these people did not have families; they had lost their families, so it became a very close knit uh, unit. Um, and uh, and uh, again, I'm still on on Neri Yisrael. Um, um, uh, by the way, another another prominent member of the uh, of the uh, people who are lovers of Toronto Jewish history, Baruch Weiss, he was able to supply me with a lot of information and stories. I just wanted to thank him for that as well. And I mentioned how Rabbi Shalom Gold was the founding Rosh Yeshiva of Ner Yisrael in Toronto, but it was started by a local uh, named Mr. Mayor Leibovich. And uh, he eventually asked Mr. Hofstadter and Mr. Bleeman to take over the Yeshiva presidency. And then eventually, in the 1970s, when Reftali Friedler became the Rosh Yeshiva, then it broke off from being a branch of Ner Yisrael in Baltimore, and it became its own independent Yeshiva. It was not the only Yeshiva. Eventually, the Reichman family opened their own Yeshiva, actually named after the patriarch of the family, Zechen Shmar Yoho, and Reb Chaim Mendel Brodsky was hired to be the Rosh Yeshiva there, um, uh, bringing him from the Mir, Mir Yeshiva in Yerushalayim, where he was the son-in-law of Reb Nachum Partzavich. Um, and that goes for yeshivas. Of course, there are other yeshivas as well. But to move on, I started talking about in last episode some of the philanthropic uh, families. Uh, there are many more. There's the Kashitsky family, the Puslins family, the Sharp family, the Mandelbaum family, the Gassner family. And a letter from a listener writes as follows, Truth is, Toronto is blessed with dozens of Jewish families who either past or present keep the community going. So if I don't mention uh, some of them, then don't be insulted. I can obviously get to all of them. Uh, one of the prominent members of the Jewish community at that time was Julius Kuhl. He was originally from Sanok in Poland, uh, born to, to an Orthodox family. He moved to Switzerland after being orphaned as a child. He eventually got a PhD in a university there in Switzerland. And he eventually works for the Polish government in exile during the war. And he was a part of a team in the Polish diplomatic mission in Switzerland with several Polish non-Jews and with the cooperation of the consuls of several South American countries to produce fake citizenship papers for thousands of Polish and Dutch Jews to attempt to save them from the Nazis. Many were saved in this way. Uh, since he's Jewish, so he's not avail- not eligible for recognition as a righteous among the nations by Yad Vashem, who only recognize non-Jews with that distinction. Uh, so, uh, you know, we have to talk about him here to make sure he gets uh, the honor what's due to him, uh, since he can't get official recognition, because unfortunately he's Jewish. Um, so in about 1950, he moved to Toronto, became very successful in business, and he remained there for about 30 years before retiring to Florida. Uh, before, th- well, during his years in Toronto, he was very active in the building of the Toronto post-war community and its institutions. Um, 
Hofstadter family, and of course today you have Dirshu, which is synonymous with the Hofstadter family and with the, the development and building of Torah, not just in Toronto, but worldwide. Of course, it's not just philanthropy, but Toronto has its fair share of Jewish music and culture. You have A.B. Rottenberg and Shlomo Simcha. And uh, I remember uh, when I was a kid, it was like a little uh, concert in the camp I was attending in the in the mountains, and uh, Shlomo Simcha was there, and he said, uh, he said, A.B. and I decided, why should we have to go to New York to record? We can record right here in Toronto, and that's how the Aish albums came out. So it came from Toronto, uh, Jewish Pride, and it goes along with the Pirche albums and Dr. Harvey Ehrlich, and there's a lot there to talk about as well. When talking about Jewish culture and music, so I want to... Go back to the pre-war. No, I'm jumping around chronologically a bit, so it might get confusing. But uh, let's perhaps go back to the pre-war, where I want to focus on another facet, which I haven't really touched on in the first two episodes, and that is the flourishing of Jewish culture, of Yiddish culture, there in the immigrant communities in um, the first half of the 20th century in Toronto. The Yiddish theater flourished in, uh, just like in New York City, in the Lower East Side, so the Yiddish theater in Toronto flourished there for a time. Politics Again, in the 1920s and 30s, there's Jewish communists, there's the Zionists of all streams from the left to the right and the center. The Agudis Yisrael is developing in Toronto, the Mizrahi, the religious Zionists, youth groups all flourished in the interwar period. There was a Yiddishist school named for Weil Peretz, and they even received a grant once from the rabbinical organization which oversaw Shechita, which I mentioned in part one, and the surplus from the Shechita, all those taxes and everything, went towards educational programs. So their endeavor to oversee the needs of the entire diverse Jewish community in Toronto at the time, they even gave grants this this religious uh, rabbinical organization that oversaw Shechita, they even gave a grant to the Weil Peretz Yiddishist uh, non-religious uh, school. Um, and speaking of Yiddishists, uh, the Arbeiter Ring was quite active in, in Toronto at the time. Yiddishist socialists, communists, affiliate organizations, they were pretty well established when compared to other communities in North America. For example, the Yiddish newspapers either socialist-leaning or non-socialist-leaning, lasted um, well into the 1960s and 70s, um, for, you know, much longer than uh, than almost any of the other cities, aside from New York, uh, in, 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 in America. There were mutual aid societies, Landsmannschaften of, of groups uh, who came from the original, based on the, their place of origin in, in Europe. In many ways, and I mentioned this already in part one, it was a miniature Lower East Side type of culture. Uh, later on, there are Jewish mayors. Interesting story, though, with a Jewish sportsman. It was a, a fellow by the name of Sammy Luftspring, who was a boxer, a boxer, a professional boxer, and he was invited to be on Team Canada in the 1936 Olympics, which was to take place in Berlin. And he goes ahead and boycotts the Olympics, and he refuses to take part in it because it was being in, held in Nazi Germany with Hitler and all the racism involved and his, uh, and his anti-Jewishness. And this was his statement to, to not partake in those Olympics. Speaking of anti-Semitism, so in 1933, there was the Christie Pitts riot, uh, an infamous riot. It took place on August 16, 1933, six months after Hitler came to power in Germany, news of, of which what he was doing already doing to the Jews of Germany at that time was being reported in the local press. It was during the Great Depression. 
And the Jews of Toronto at that time were primarily immigrants of the working class. Many of them were poor. And during the summer, they would come to the beaches. And this was resented by many of the local non-Jewish Canadians um, who resented, uh, there was animosity, it was immigrants, poor, foreigners. And they formed, a group of them formed the Swastika Club to be provocative against the local Jews. And this riot breaks out at a local baseball game. It was an open display of anti-Semitism, swastika, Nazi symbols, even cries of Hail Hitler. There was a lot of beatings, uh, um, violence. It was a full-blown riot for six hours. No one was killed, but many were injured, and the police were criticized for delayed intervention. Uh, interestingly enough, the Italians, who were immigrants themselves, supported the Jews during the riot, um, which was very, also symptomatic of the time in New York also. And it was a xenophobic and anti-Semitic expression, which often goes together, unfortunately, it's something we see until this uh, very day day. Um, a, um, continuing on Jewish culture, but moving on to the contemporary scene, so the 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 singer, quite a famous singer, so I'm told, uh, the singer Drake is a, uh, is, is a Jewish and he's from Toronto. Um, and then in, in sports, uh, in hockey, you have one of the Tannenbaums, a nephew of Joe Tannenbaum is, is the owner of the Maple Leafs and the Raptors. And I remember when growing up that Sean Green, which his original family name was Greenberg, uh, was a Jewish uh, a player on the Toronto Blue Jays. Of course, afterwards he played for much more Jewish teams. He played for the Mets and the Dodgers, and uh, and uh, and had a quite an impressive career. He was probably the greatest uh, Jewish hitter uh, since Hank Greenberg, who was not related but had a similar name. Um, and uh, and the uh, and the, so that's Jewish. Well, but if we go back. To the general history of the post-war, like I said, a very, very high proportion of Holocaust survivors who become like family as they had no one else. And in the post-war, one of the most dominant features of Toronto Jewish life is the that the Reichmans come onto the scene. In fact, my good friend Srili Besser is uh, working on a book uh, on, on, on Moshe Reichman. And uh, it's going to be a fantastic book. It's 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 in its in its uh, final stages, and I'm sure everyone's going to go and purchase it. If you like the Nishmas book, you'll for sure like this because it's even better. It's an actual historical account, and uh, so he was gracious enough to share with me just a couple of stories so I can share with you. And and of course, uh, it's going to be a sneak preview to the exciting things that are going to go on in that book. Um, I mentioned uh, uh, in, a pre- in the previous episode the teacher of Rameir Grunwald, who was uh, a grandson of the Arugas Abaisim, Rameisha Grunwald, the son of Rameisha Yosef Grunwald. Um, and they're actually related to the Reichman Gestetner family. Um, Rameir Grunwald, the, the teacher of, uh, he had been the rabbi in Teich in Hungary, but um, during the war he lost his wife and children, and he was conscript, conscripted into the army, and then captured by the Russians, and and uh, and uh, he was eventually released. He was in Siberia for a time, and eventually he headed to. Uh, he tried to head to the United States. His uncle, the Tzela Merav, who I mentioned recently on the Chust uh, episode, um, and he, he tried to join him there in New York, but he ended up in Canada in 1949, in Toronto, with his second wife and children, um, and um, and that's it. There was no, no one there was there to welcome him. No one 
was there to crown him rabbi. Uh, there wasn't much available for him to do. He decided he's opening his own shul on his own, on his own initiative, and he called it Shleime Emune Yisrael. And in the 1950s, when the Reichmans moved to Toronto, all of a sudden, this shul came to life. And they joined it, and they you know, created that Hungarian Oberland atmosphere, and uh, in this way, Rameer Grunwald was able to realize his dream because of the Reichmans. Um, and uh, and then the Reichmans uh, started supporting uh, the Eitz Chaim, the local uh, the local schools, and um, and uh, and the Mrs. Renee Reichman, Renee. Uh, Reichman, uh, she she did not uh, limit herself as as a very famous Holocaust activist. She didn't limit herself to supporting the local institutions, but she went out and helped people on her own for real, real help, not just with money. Um, she once entered a local store, and the proprietor confided with her that his wife wasn't feeling well. So Mrs. Reichman uh, asked a few questions, and after realizing that the situation was quite serious, she had her driver take her and the ailing woman directly to the hospital. In her accented English, she got back to work just as she had in Vienna of a different time, petitioning doctors and advocating for the patient. She has a husband and children who need her. You can't let her die, Mrs. Reichman kept insisting, not relenting until surgery was scheduled and a course of treatment decided upon. She had left Tangier and the Vadat Sala was no longer, but she was still going with her chesed projects. Um, at one point, Ramesh Reichman went to consult with the Satmar Rebbe, about where to raise his children. He said, maybe I should move to Montreal because they have a much stronger chinuch infrastructure at that time, 1950s, 1960s, and it was very much rooted in the, in, in the Hungarian uh, tradition. In Toronto, uh, the Rebbe, so the, so, so the Satmar said, you can also raise your children in Toronto. Uh, you can raise them Erlich. And so he said, so, so what Ramesh Reichman's solution was, was to create the Taira and Chinuch system in Toronto for his children. In 1965, when the Rav passed away, uh, quite relatively young, he was 58 years old, so one of the members of the shul was Rablipa Vechter, who had been planning on moving to Williamsburg to be close to his Rebbe, the Satmar Rebbe. Now the Reichmans wanted him to stay local and become the rabbi to replace the Rav since they needed a Haimish So the Satmar Rebbe said to Reblipa Vechter, stay in Toronto. Uh, you, you stay there and be the rabbi of that shul where the Reichmans are, and everything will be fine. And uh, so together with the Reichmans, Reblipa Vechter, uh, you know, with regards to Kashrus and Shechita and this community, um, and, uh, and, uh, and after his passing, when Reblipa passed away, he had in his will that he be buried in Monroe, uh, near the Satmar but he did not want to be flown there because he didn't want uh, any any uh, airline personnel, non-Jewish airline personnel, to be handling his body. He only wanted religious Jews to be handling his body. So they thought they would have to drive there. But it would be a very long uh, car trip. So instead, the Reichman family chartered a private plane and accompanied him to Monroe. Um, eventually, uh, they founded a, a another school, Yesodi HaTorah, and the survivor community may, primarily sent their children to that school. The school flourished, and uh, and that became another institution. Another another yeshiva, by the way, in Toronto is Reb David Kaplan, the son of the famous Rabbi Baruch and Vichna Kaplan, uh, Yeshivas Nachlas Tzvi. 
Um, another phenomenon that happens in the post-war is in the 1960s, a large contingent of Sephardic Jews arrive in Toronto. And I had the privilege of speaking to one of the leaders of that community, Rabbi David Kadosh, and he was able to share with me the history of this, uh, fascinating history of this community, all the way down to the contemporary. The Sephardic community is made up mostly of Moroccan immigrants who arrived in Toronto, in Canada, in the 1950s and 60s, but it is different than the Montreal one, which I discussed in the Montreal episode. Um, the the Toronto Sephardic community comprises primarily from Tangier and Tetuan, uh, which is the area of Spanish Morocco. All well, those in Montreal are from the French parts of Morocco, which is for obvious reasons. In Quebec, the French, uh, you know, fit in better. Uh, so Mr. Maurice Benzatsar, one of the community founders at the time, was working for the Jewish Immigrant, immigrant Aid Services, and he was instrumental in bringing in families and setting them up, especially that they didn't know the language and also had very uh, insufficient funding to establish themselves. And he helped set up one of the first synagogues, Mag and David Congregation, which is one of the few French-Moroccan synagogues in the city, but uh, most prestigious and authentic. Um, at the same time, is that they built the Petach Tikva Anshe Castilla congregation, which, as its name implies, Castilla is Spanish-Moroccan Jews, which is led by the community leader Leon Oziel. Um, and then the Oziel family, after Leon uh, tragically uh, passed away at a very young age, they continue to be the backbone of the synagogue and continues following the traditions of Spanish-Moroccan Jewry in Tangier. Um, the Petach Tikva eventually hired a rabbi, Chacham Amram Asiag, uh, who, was, who was a student of Rabbi Shalom Asas in, 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 in Yerushalayim. And uh, he was a native Moroccan Jew. And he initiated the Sephardic Rabbinate of Ontario. and was, in, was instrumental with Mr. Benzatsar and philanthropist Mr. Jackie's ben, Benquisis to open the first and still only Sephardic Jewish day school called Or HaEmet. Um, Mr. Benguiz has a dream, had a dream and a vision to buy land and build a school on its own premises. So in the 1980s, he purchased a plot of land in the developing city of Thornhill, which is right near Toronto and today one of the largest uh, Jewish communities in the country. And eventually, uh, they, um, they opened a Sephardic Kehila Center in the 90s, which was a full blown Jewish community with, with all the services of a Jewish community even had uh, um, a host to smaller Sephardic, local Sephardic communities such as the Iraqi community in Toronto, the Bukharian, and it's one of the most majestic and magnificent synagogues in the world, and it's actually a replica of one of the grand synagogues in Toledo, Spain, interestingly enough, the tourist attraction. In fact, the King of Morocco himself donated a stunning fountain that sits in the lobby of the synagogue, which is fascinating because... I don't know if the Prime Minister of Hungary or the President of Poland or the or or or, or Vladimir Putin ever donated anything to an Ashkenazi synagogue in Brooklyn. So the fact that the King of Morocco has this uh, affiliation with a Sephardic synagogue in Toronto it is in itself historic, which reminds me that I am going on a trip, uh, leading a trip to Morocco very soon, and uh, you'll definitely want to join us for that. It's a public trip, an open trip with ENS Tours, and uh, you should uh, definitely sign up. It's going to be an amazing and exciting trip in uh, about a month from now, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but going back to Toronto, uh, with the opening of the Kahila Center, uh, so the... Um, so the uh, uh, the 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 community is 
growing, and uh, in fact, they even had a, uh, a, a kolel, a Sephardic kolel, uh, run by uh, Rabbi Yosef Ozil and Rabbi Eliyahu Zrian opened up, and uh, and the, today the community is run as a measure of success and growth and health of a community. The, commu- the Sephardic community is run by local native. Uh, born rabbis uh, who were born in Toronto. Uh, you don't have to import anyone when you can produce your own. Um, in fact, Chacham Asiag, who I mentioned, sat on the Toronto Besden with Rabbi Ox and Rabbi Shochet, who I mentioned previously in part two in regards to uh, Gittin. Why? Because it was something he insisted on to ensure that there was a Sephardic representation so that the names can be spelled according to the Sephardic tradition. Uh, so there's, and then, and then there's an, an influx of Jewish immigration from Montreal in the 1970s and 80s when the government and the politics started changing in Quebec. So many Montrealians started moving to Toronto as well. In fact, uh, Russian Jews started moving uh, from the, the Soviet Union to Toronto as well. So there's this really diverse Jewish community from many uh, countries around the world. In fact, the Russian Jewish neighborhood is nicknamed Little Moscow. So uh, today it can be, it's, it's, it's quite a diverse community. So this was, uh, I think, enough after three parts on uh, the history of the, and leading all the way down to contemporary of the, the Jewish community of Toronto. So this is Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudiGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.